The second announcement uh, in the bulletin that I want to talk about is we are looking for men who are willing to read scripture and pray, like I'm about to do. Um, we would like to have a rotation of, of guys that would like to do that, or teams even. It was great to have the teams serve in taking the offering today, and they're certainly more than welcome uh, to join us in reading scripture. So um, if you would like to be a part of that schedule, and I would encourage you to do so, because the more people that do it, the better. Uh, just let me know. You can shoot me a text, give me a call, email, uh, talk to me after church, whatever's easier for you. Um, if you're afraid of public speaking, it's a good way to get over it. And if you're good at public speaking, then share your gift with us, please. Um, so, anyway. Plus, it's not scripted. You just read the Bible. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty easy. You're going to read, read God's Word. And then, and then, uh, and then uh, as we learned today, our prayer should be a response to what we read in God's Word. So, uh, it's pretty much out of your hands. Just read scripture and pray in response. That's alright. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, as we continue in our time of worship. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written... He who glorifies, let him glory in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, which speaks to us and gives us instruction. We pray that you would work in this body, in these frail, weak bodies, to slave pride that we would put our pride in ourselves aside, away to put that pride off and that we would look to you to Jesus to the gospel message that we are sinners in need of a savior that we have a father that Jesus sacrificed and died for our sins that we are brothers, joint heirs with Christ, that we are brothers and sisters together, unified in this good news, the gospel. Father, we pray that you would work to sanctify this body, make this truth real in the lives that we live, and that we would take that out into the community around us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could snap your fingers and instantly become anyone you wish to be, who would it be? 
a certain entertainer that you admire, a wealthy individual, uh, an athlete, a hero, someone who is beautiful to the world or powerful or attractive or very skilled at what they do, or a certain political leader. Who would that be? And then, why did you choose that person? Few people would say, if they're honest, that they want to be a nobody. But this passage, this morning in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, tells us exactly why being a nobody is the best thing. And let me catch you up, because it's been a few weeks here since we've been in 1 Corinthians. This is a letter that Paul, after he had some, some opportunities to, to minister to a city called Corinth in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, saw, that, saw God save people and a church formed. And Paul invested in there for about 18 months, uh, uh, maturing, making maturing disciples during that time there. And it was a couple of years later that Paul hears reports from some people about how poorly this church is doing. They are living just like people who were not born again would live. They are valuing and making choices that do not reflect the Savior who saved them. And Paul writes these 16 chapters to this church. And verse 10 of chapter 1 begins the actual body of the letter after the greeting that falls into two main parts. Paul's response to the Corinthians that he's heard by word of mouth in chapter 1 verse 10 through chapter 6 and verse 20. And then Paul's reply to a letter that the Corinthians had sent him with questions, chapter 7, 1 through chapter 16. And in the first half of the letter, Paul refers to four problems he has heard about that are plaguing the Corinthian church. There are divisions that are plaguing the church, factions, divisiveness. There is even an occasion of sexual immorality that the church is just letting take place. There are lawsuits, people who claim the name of Christ who are suing each other over disagreements in a public court of law in chapter 6, verse 11. And then more generally, there is additional sexual immorality in in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. There are people who are members of a woman named Chloe's household, her home, and an anonymous family who have brought them news of the first of these problems in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 11. And in the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul will spill ink on four chapters on the cross that center this church and address every single problem from there outward. He centers on their main problem. The cross of Jesus Christ is to center us and is to propel us forward in unity and it is to guide our words and our deeds in the church. And Paul deals with this first of the four problems, the factions, the divisiveness, with these four chapters at the greatest length because the Corinthian divisiveness to varying degrees uh, uh, under, underlies uh, all these other, other problems here. And so in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17, Paul stated the essential problem. There were rival factions. People following other Christian leaders and using those leaders uh, and, and their followings here to pit them against each other instead of seeing them as a unity and a, and a, and a combination for God's purposes. And Paul's essential solution there in verses 10 through 17 is be unified in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And then last time we saw in verses 18 through 25, it is the cross of Christ that seems like the thing that the world would despise and spit on and curse and seem ridiculous to them. That is really what we should exalt and glory in and boast and build our lives on and does bring us unity. And so from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 through chapter 4 verse 21, Paul will unpack why this unity in the cross is so crucial and how it can become possible. And so let me let me just kind of give you a, a, a brief uh, overview here and just a couple sentences of 1 Corinthians 1 18 to 421. Because there are four methods here. There are four angles and unity on achieving unity in chapter 1 through 4. And the first is what we looked at last time, chapter 118, and it's included in this material today through chapter 2, verse 5, focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus Christ have to die? How does that bring us unity? Then in chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, understanding true spiritual wisdom. What is wisdom? What's common sense in the world? What is the world value? And what is spiritual biblical wisdom? And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 23, the fundamental equality of all believers in Jesus Christ. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 21, well, then if everybody has, has the same fundamental equality, then how do we treat Christian leaders? Where does that fit into it? And that's what Paul will address in these four chapters to bring unity. So Paul here has been sketching in so far in this in this passage, in this chapter, how the message of the cross divides the human race. And we saw that last time we spoke. And in large part, he is focused on those who have rejected the message of the cross and how uh, they see it as foolishness. It's ridiculous. How could a peasant Jew, a despised race in the Roman Empire, crucified as a common criminal, how could that be the answer to the world's deepest problem? And now he's going to turn exclusively to those who accepted the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection, and he's going to, find, and he's going to show them that they are examples of his vision of what the message of the cross is all about. That by and large, the people who have accepted this message are not the people that the world looks at and says, wow, look at those people. They are not the wise. They are not the glamorous. They are not the gifted. No, they are God's nobodies. And this morning I'd like to give you a message entitled, God's Nobodies from 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. In this passage here, Paul will make his point. And then he'll do, and then he will offer a reasons for why this is true, and then he will end with what a Christian vision of being a nobody is all about. Josh has read the scripture here, and I want you to see that the main theme in these verses, as I see it in verses twenty six through thirty one, is that we rejoice in God. We rejoice in God. We boast, we rejoice, we glory in God. We trust in God. There is, there is nothing else that is worthy of our rejoicing, of our boasting, of our glorying, of our ultimate trust in except God because of the gospel. Now here's the irony of the passage here. These Corinthian believers are acting just like the world because they are judging Paul and his gospel from this point of view here, of the world's point of view. 
Here they are saying, um, in, in, the, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, they are saying, well, I enjoy this leader. I am awed by the way he communicates. I, I follow this particular leader. I, I'm a disciple of this Christian leader. And Paul is saying, that's the very thing that Christianity is not about and the world is all wrapped up in. Personalities. And it's not that these Christian leaders were bad, they were doing a good thing. What was wrong is people were using their particular styles here to then divide other members in the church from. And so this is, this is, a, this is an irony here. Uh, their present situation, they're judging Paul and the gospel from the world's point of view. And if they would really apply the message of the cross that they said they believed, that they said they responded to, it would really show how insignificant they are. And that's the thrust of this passage. So Paul's going to say, since you're not going to apply it to yourself, let me do that for you. I'll apply it to you to show how God's perspective is very different from your own. Notice verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh. When he's saying after the flesh, he means the, 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 the way the world sees things. Uh, uh, just the here and now here. God has called not many wise after the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that we rejoice in God by considering our calling. Rejoice in God by considering your calling. Your head getting a little too big. As my grandma used to say, getting a little too big for my britches. Uh, pride swelling. This is the antidote. This is a thing that slays pride. Consider your calling. And so I do want you to consider that this morning. Consider your calling. And what he's saying is consider what God called you out of into the glorious gospel of Christ. He's saying, rejoice in God by considering your calling because we are chosen, though foolish and weak and despised by the world. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, uh, he's, he, it's like he's lining up the Corinthian church on the stage here and he's saying, see you, see you, see you, see you. You guys are the empirical evidence here. This is the observable facts here. I want you Corinthians to recognize these things. That you can consider your calling out of what God called you from, and you can say, wow, it was all God and not me. And so when he tells them to consider what they were when they were called, what he means is he wants them to remember their station in life from which they were converted. And what were they? Well, here's what he says. Your calling, brethren, is that not many wise men after the flesh. It it, it, it describes many of you. And what he means by that is not many wise men after the flesh is, in other words, the world would not look at you and say you had it figured out. You were on the stage of glamour. You were on the stage of fame. You had built your platform for, for worldwide success. That's what Paul means by that. And God called them out of their station of life. And it was not even in the world's eyes a very empowering and exciting station of life. It wasn't very... Uh, they weren't ama- the world would not be amazed by it. They were not influential. They were not influential. When he says, um, God has chosen 
how that not many wise men after the flesh, verse 26, not many mighty. The idea there is not, not people who are, who have big muscles, not people who are strong, not people who are powerful in strength, but rather power in influence. Influence. He says, when I look at you, Corinthian church, and this is God's pattern all throughout his building his church, is I see a group of people who in society would not be looked at as very influential. These were not on the who's who list uh, uh, here in, the, in their society. They, they were also were a people who Paul says not many noble. And the idea there is of noble birth. Because in those days, the overwhelming uh, majority of the wealthy would have been from upper classes. You would have been born in, with a silver spoon in your mouth. It would have been passed from family to family. There wasn't as much of, of, uh, of working uh, from the ground up to, to acquire wealth. Uh, most of the wealthy came, sprang from the upper classes. And Paul reminds them that not many of them met those standards. In fact, there are probably, if the Roman Empire uh, um, demographics would have fit this church here, there are probably many that were slaves in the Roman Empire that were part of this church. And Paul says, you are exhibit A, that God chooses the weak things of the world. Influential people. Maybe there were some among them. The idea there uh, of, 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 of mighty and influential is that it's, 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 it's someone who... Um, uh, has clout, has clout. These people didn't have clout in their city. And Paul reminds the Corinthian believers that not many of them met those standards. And isn't that a, isn't that again a, 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 another beauty into God's grace and mercy? That there are people who he does save out of influential lives in the world, right? Um, people of wealth and People of means that God does save. Isn't, isn't that great? Um, Leonard Ravenhill tells about a group of tourists who are visiting a picturesque village and they walk by an old man sitting beside a, a fence. And this tourist asked, uh, were any great men born in this village? And the old man replied, no, only babies. And that's the truth of the matter of it, isn't it, right? We're, we're, we're all born the same, aren't we? Um, we're all human beings. And Paul is saying, remember this. Remember where you came from. And he's saying, not many wise. In the days of the great evangelist George Whitfield, there was a noblewoman by the name of the Countess of Huntington. And she said she was saved by an M. She was saved by an M. She became a believer. She says she was saved by an M, the letter M, because of this verse here. God's word says not... It doesn't say not any noble. It says not many noble. And she hung on to that. First century, first century Christianity was full of slave and free, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female. But there were many poor, ill-educated people, many slaves, illiterates. But there were also people who are listed like Crispus and Gaius and Philemon and Erastus. Not to mention people who had amazing intellect like Paul's. And Paul's saying here that these categories have no eternal significance. The categories that the world looks at as great, the rich and famous, etc. here, they have no eternal significance. And if you look at the end of the book of, of, of Scripture in Revelation chapter 21, the Bible says, And I saw standing before the great white throne, the small and the great had no eternal significance. When it all comes down to it, 
And Paul's point is that the wise or the influential, the, the, the power brokers, the well-born is not the criteria of being a Christian or being spiritual. And in fact, oftentimes, God's method was for Jesus to go to the poor, the broken, the captives to preach the gospel, wasn't it? This is a, this was in society's eyes, a low class operation of Jesus building his church. These are nobodies here. There are some exceptions, yes, people who are sophisticated, but they had to come to that place where they realized that I am no better. It's equal ground at the cross. They weren't excluded. But what he's saying here is being well regarded in the world here is not necessarily in any sense an advantage before God. Listen, if you and I can approach God on the terms of our amazing intellect, our accomplishments, our wealth, you know what we would do? we would then be comparing ourselves to other people because those are the very things that we use to separate ourselves from other people, right? Uh, And Paul says, this is not the vision of God. That is ridiculous. That is nonsense. God is not impressed by political clout, by extravagant wealth, uh, by, 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 by by your influence. And these of all people, Paul says, should have recognized that point because they were the exhibit of this. But they did not. And by the way, friends, it also reminds us here that the power of the gospel is in the message. Yes, God saves pop singers. God saves Hollywood actors. God saves wealthy billionaires, right? He certainly does. But why do we think we need to parade people like that in order to draw crowds? Why is it that we constantly parade uh, a Christian athlete who comes to Jesus or a media personality or, or whoever because we think that will draw the world? No, the thing that stuns the world and the thing that is beautiful about the gospel is that it is the ordinary people. Now, we're no exception. I'm no exception. You are no exception. Listen. The experience that you have had with Jesus' grace in the gospel is no less significant than the king or queen of England coming to Christ. When you tell outsiders about people in your church, Do you talk about the cool people, the people you are impressed with? That is a standard that you are impressed with them because of the world's definition of what impresses them. Or do you instantly think of the truth that this is a beautiful, messed, flawed, messy community of people who are despised and lonely who become Christians? Or do we love to impress people with the importance of the men and women who have become Christians? Well, listen. Christianity, especially in the West here, and I'm sure it's worldwide, is infected with this virus here of, 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 uh, of the world's standard of amazing people. Go to any Christian conference, right? Guess who's not there? The pastor who's been, you know, in northern Maine with a church of 30 people for 40 years. If we are going to be a people who are unified and slay pride... 
and we build up humility, then we got to maximize the grace of God that has reached into broken people. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But, look in verse 27. Secondly, rejoice in God by considering your cause. Considering your cause. But, God has called, God has chosen the foolish things of the world. The things that the world says, these are ridiculous. These are the scum of the earth people. These are the people that, that really don't matter. These are people that make no difference in society. They're useless. They're worthless. They don't do anything for me. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound or shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound or shame the things which are mighty and base, lowly things of the world. And things which are despised has God chosen. Yea, and things which are not. Things that the world says it's nothing. To bring to nothing things that are. So friends, if we are going to slay humility, uh, slay pride and grow in humility, if we are going to be a body that is unified in the gospel, which will not come through pride, but will only come through humility in the gospel, then secondly, we need to rejoice in God by considering your cause. Because why has God chosen these weak things of the world? The answer is in verse 27 and 28, because He will shame the wise, the strong, the influential, the, exalt, the exalted. And what He's saying is this. The reason there are not very many big shots in Jesus' church, according to the world's standards, is that though God is not a respecter of persons, God has chosen the nobodies. In other words, that puffed up balloon of pride in my accomplishments, Jesus likes to poke with a pin and say, I'll take the fragments and that's what I'll multiply my church with. Parading in pride, men and women, with, with, their, with, with what they are uh, able to comprehend, uh, Jesus chooses the simple, doesn't he? Assessing people on the basis of your respective holdings or your 401k portfolio, God chooses people who don't put trust in that. Self-centered leaders who may lust for power and influence. God chooses the nobodies. By the way, have you ever noticed that um, we have really not, that I know of, elected a president that is poor? <laughs> People say, well, Abraham Lincoln, yeah, he became the man of means here through his... Uh, his uh, skill in, in, in being a lawyer. You know, it, it's, not those, it's, not, it's not the people who are in poverty that we elect to be our leaders, is it? We don't look at a man's character necessarily, ultimately, do we? In our society for who should govern over us. And Jesus Christ has chosen those who are broken, those who have humbled themselves, those who he says humble themselves as a child receives him. Why does he do this? The people that the world does not highly esteem, God has taken this step to shatter human boasting in the end, the last shall be first. Right? 
God's acts to redeem fallen men and women because he is gracious and for no other reason. God takes the action so that no one may boast before him. And when Paul is referring to the weak, the foolish, the ridiculous, here he is referring to an Old Testament passage that he, as a Jewish man, must have had impressed in his heart. I'd like you to turn there. It is Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. Way back to the left. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 9. And here is what Paul is referring to this passage. He's loosely quoting from, and then in verse 31, he will specifically quote from Jeremiah chapter 9. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glories or boasts, rejoices, trusts, brag in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment or justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. You know, you think through history and think about the people that God has used, and they were not very many mighty, were they? David, the youngest brother, left in the field. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, there's one more, he's over there. He becomes the next king, right? Abraham called out of the Ur, the city of Ur of the Cal, city of Ur of the Chaldees. Nothing special about Abraham. God blesses him, but nothing special about him. Jesus, poor, a carpenter, Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Is what they say. And that's where God put Jesus. Who were the first alerted to Jesus coming as baby? Shepherds. Right? One day Jesus was giving a parable and he has these fishermen or his disciples around him. And they begin to see the truth of this parable and Jesus says, I rejoice in you, Father. I thank you, Father, because you have... Not revealed this to the wise, but you have revealed this to the babes. Jesus. Rejoice in God by considering your cause. Listen. The fact that you are among a community that really doesn't have any big shots shows us God's grace and power and one day we will reign with Christ. By considering your cause... Jesus will one day shame the wise, the strong, and exalt you, saying, well, why, why, why do I need to be excited about shaming the wise and the strong and exalted, right? Doesn't that sound like a little, little vengeful? Well, what he's saying here is that it's the truth of the gospel that is validated before the whole world. You see, the Corinthians themselves were unassailable proof that God's categories of wisdom and power are radically different from those of the world. 
God has taken the action here to heap for Himself souls redeemed from the brand, like brands from the fire here, uh, so that no one may boast before Him. Isaiah forty two eight says, "I am the Lord; that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols." Isaiah forty eight eleven. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How could I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Again and again, Paul has to warn the Corinthians about the dangers in their boasting. And in the treatise of the gospel, Romans, and Romans chapter 3 and verse 27, Paul says if you have a deep understanding of the gospel, you have to agree with Paul and say, where then is boasting? It is excluded. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no way we can brag, wow, I did it. I barred through those gates of heaven. I got myself up on the straight and narrow. No. When we look at where we came from, where we were, it magnifies the glory of God's grace in the cross. The outreach of the cross has been measured by the profile of this particular congregation in Corinth. Slave, men, woman, free, etc. here. Salvation, God's free gift, has been secured by the death of His own Son. And this death that the world looks at and sneers at here is God's triumphant act. And it is received by those who trust Him. Not by the beautiful people and the rich and powerful people, but those who humble themselves as a child. The Corinthian believers should have understood these things. By simply remembering, looking at who they were when God saved them, and then rejoicing by considering what God would do out of that, considering their cause. And so what some see as the shame of Christianity, Paul sees in God's eyes as this is the glory of Christianity, a crucified Savior. By bringing good news to the poor here, is exhibited with the Corinthians. God has aligned Himself with the marginalized and the disenfranchised. And He has played out before our very eyes His overturning, overthrowing of the world's standards. And so this Scripture here is not necessarily demeaning the Corinthians, saying, okay, yeah, you're a bunch of nobodies here. That's half of it. The point of the of, of of saying that these that we're all nobodies before God is so that God is magnified, so that He is exalted here, and so it is not demeaning the Corinthians. It's not demeaning those of us who have come from humble uh, means here. It is it is an exaltation of the marvelous grace of God. Because there is no other society, no other system in the world that says. That measures people on the basis of what Jesus has done rather than who we are. And friends, this tells us and reminds us the ground is level at the foot of the cross. People are people. And there is not a single thing that any of us possess that will give us an advantage before God. Not intellectual brilliance, though God can use those things, right? Not clout in society. Though God can use those things. Not money, not prestige. Those are all okay things and can be used, but they have to be given to Jesus 
and say, Jesus, you take these, rather than saying, Jesus, look at me with all these things. That's the difference. And so by choosing the lowly Corinthians, God is declaring to the world that he has forever ruled out any imaginable human system of gaining favor with God. And so therefore, he can say thirdly, that all this is in verse 29, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. When it all comes down to it, and we stand before God, those who are redeemed of God will not be able to say, you chose me because you gave me such a perfect nose. (laughs) Or you gave me this incredible skill in accounting. Or man, I could really swing a hammer and use a scroll saw. Or I just had a flint and, and, and an amazing personality just connected with people. When it all comes down to it, it will be because of Jesus, the grace of Jesus shown, his gift offered to you. It's all trust him completely or nothing. There's no middle ground. Look at this, verse 29. That no fall, this is for that purpose, that no flesh should glory in his presence. How can I glory in myself when I'm standing next to a God who defies our imagination? Now look, thirdly, rejoice in God by considering your creation. Your creation, and by this I mean your new creation. Your creation, because in Christ you are what you were not. But of Him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories or boasts, let him glory in the Lord. So here's the application of all of this here, okay? He says, here's, here's God's point. We're nobodies. Uh, here's the reason for that. So that he would be glorified. And now here's the application in this passage. The point of all of this is so that You obey a command. And so this is a command in verse 30 and 31. Okay, In verse 30, he's still building the case. He's saying, you are nobodies, but you have a somebody. And now in verse 31, he's saying, and now here is where this needs to be honed and sharpened. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's how you need to live. He doesn't give all the details of applying this, but he says this is the way you need to think and this is the way you need to act. In verse 31, according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. So there's a command to boast in this. That God not only prohibits the worldly wise, the worldly influential, the worldly rich from boasting of their assets, but he says let him who boasts Boast about this. So there is a right way to brag, to boast, to glory. And it is this. Now this does not belong to those who focus on themselves, is it? This is to people who truly come to know God and delight in Him. He, to those who, who, who God is, 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 is their center. Who think of Him, who delight in Him, who boast of Him. This is what it means to be a Christian. They want to know more and more about what kind of God He is and who He is and, 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 and what a Father He is to them. 
And they learn, and we saw in Jeremiah, he's the one who exercises, know the Lord because he's the one who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. And people who want to know that kind of God, want to have those values begin to permeate their own life. Because God is their center, they're taking their, their, uh, their, their, their DNA from Him, they're bragging in Him. And what Paul is saying in verse 30 is this. That God's values, His kindness, His justice, His righteousness, has all occurred in the death of His Son. That's where it all has occurred. God's justice is satisfied through the death of His Son as sin is paid for. And God's love and kindness is shown by offering Christ in our place to all who will believe. So God's most dramatic act of kindness and justice and righteousness that Jeremiah tells us we are to know, we are to boast in, has been concentrated into this act, this point in history that divides the world, the crucifixion of the Son of God. And it is scandalous to the world. It is scandalous grace. Because no matter how angry, no matter how frustrated you are that you can't earn it, you can't earn it. No matter how, how uh, um, uh, angry you are at God that you can't control Him, you can't control Him. He has done the work, this must be received. And so it's because of Him, Paul says, that you are in Christ Jesus. You, according to the world, were nobodies, but you know a somebody. And Paul tells the Corinthians, they have become Christians. They are now in Christ Jesus, meaning they have been reconciled to God. They have tasted their sins being forgiven. They have seen that the ground is level at the cross. They have come in humility and understood that before God, they are undone, they are unworthy. But what Jesus is, is everything. And what Jesus has done for them is everything. And so what they were not according to the world, they are in Jesus with fullness, not just shallow temporality, eternally. Reconciled to God. The crucified and risen Jesus is God's plan. And this is God's wisdom for the world. He's become for us wisdom from God. They're, the two cannot coexist. They, the, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the cross cannot coexist. It's one or the other. They, the wisdom of the world does not make room for the cross. And the wisdom from God is the cross. It is Christ crucified, verse 23. And it's this wisdom that doesn't just change a temporary status like your Facebook status, but this is an eternal status. Because this has brought men and women into an eternal, deep living relationship with a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact... Verse 30 tells us this wisdom is nothing less than us being made the righteousness of Christ, the holiness, the setting apart to God, 
and the being bought, the redemption, that means being bought with a price. You see, we owed a great debt we couldn't pay. And of course, Christ paid the great debt that he didn't owe for us. This wisdom means nothing less than our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And if that is not enough for you, try the world's wisdom and see how that goes. But what Paul is saying here in this text is that is everything and that is enough. You can have everything taken away from you, right? Every single possession, every single ability, it can all be taken away from you in a moment, can't it? And if you have Jesus, you have enough. Your life may end, and all those things that you may have built up, that you may have put a whole lot of stock in, are revealed to be not that important. And Jesus is enough. Because He is our wisdom, He is our righteousness, He is our sanctification, He is our redemption. What He means is this. The wisdom of God on the cross of Jesus Christ has secured our righteousness, our legal standing before God, so that God, through Jesus, does not see me as a hell-bound sinner. God, through Jesus, now sees me as the perfect righteousness of Jesus, who never sinned, who always obeyed, even to the extent of the death on the cross, Philippians 2 tells us. It also tells us that we are holy, That means that we exclusively belong to God. We've been set apart to God. We have been made with a a new operating system to love God in the fullness that we're called to. And he also says he is our redemption. And that's a term that was used in the slave trade of the Roman Empire to refer to um, buying a slave from the slave market. And Jesus has purchased us to be freed to him. Newfound freedom from sin, corruption, and death. So we don't just have a new relationship with God. We have a new relationship with sin. New relationship is this way. The relationship to God is this way. That's the beauty of the gospel. The the beauty of Christ. And so the message of the cross, chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, shapes our ministry. It is the message that is the power of God. It is, it is, it is, it is not our methods that our, our, our trust is in. It is in the power of the message of God and we proclaim the message and we call people to faith and repentance in that. But the outreach of the cross here in verses 26 through 31 tells us it's for all who realize, yeah, I am the not wise. I am the not mighty. I am the weak. The outreach of the cross confirms that message and it drives us back to what is fundamental. So what does this mean for our church here? It means we're a um, a messy bunch of individuals, aren't we? We're all a bunch of nobodies. I don't care if we had the governor in our midst here or whoever. Before God, we're all a bunch of nobodies who Jesus loves so much, right? That he has brought us into fellowship with his son. And Jesus is that somebody who does that. And therefore, if you're a member of this church, you are no less important than the next member who's been here for 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, 2 years. The ground is level at the cross. No one here is better than anybody else. Including and especially the one standing up here. Just ask my family. 
Jesus is what matters. So how does that build unity in the church? Well, I don't look people, I don't look at people and put them in all these little categories, right? The category that matters, what Paul is saying here is the category that matters is verse 30. That's the category we look at people through. Yeah, we're not going to agree on everything. We're going to disagree on things. You can't disagree on verse 30. Of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so therefore, the mandate for that, for us then, the command to obey after this, is to boast in Jesus. So, you receive a compliment, you know how to direct that compliment, right? It's because of Jesus. You accomplish anything, it's because of Jesus. You make an impact and have an influence on someone else's life, it's because of Jesus. You have a disagreement, get back to the root cause, or get back to the root here that you have in common with that individual in our church, it's Jesus. And that person is an unbeliever, you get back to the thing that you don't have in common and say that person needs Jesus. And you show them, and you tell them about Jesus. If this passage can't slay pride in our own hearts, then I don't know one that would do better. If this passage can't produce unity by reminding us that we're on a level standing at the cross, then I don't know what will. But the way to push into that unity, into that humility, is to realize that everything that I had attached to me when I came to Jesus was stripped away at the cross. And I was standing there in my birthday suit. And Jesus puts on me his robes of righteousness. That's what matters. And that's our basis. Let's pray.